And we are looking at the Bible book of Ruth, kind of a little obscure book in the Old Testament. And, and we're looking at the story of Ruth there. And Charlotte got us off to a tremendous start last week. She did a phenomenal job. If you missed that, I, I want to encourage you to check it out. Okay. As soon as she'd finished preaching, I got a text from our son in Texas. He said, I just, I just, watched, Jonathan, I, I just watched Charlotte follow that. So I'm reliably informed I'm not allowed to say hold my beer in church, right? <laughs> you know what? I, I just love the fact that we've got such a strong teaching team here. And, uh, you know, it doesn't all depend on one person, but we've got a number of people who do a great job of teaching God's Word. And that's part of our strength that I really appreciate. So let's pray, shall we? And then we'll come to look at God's Word today. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here, away from everything else, in your house, in your presence, with your people. Thank you that in these moments we can lower our defenses and just open our hearts to you. So Lord, will you speak to us as we share your word together, I pray. Amen. Let me do a little recap for those of you that weren't with us last Sunday on the, the story of the book of Ruth so far. Um, the book of Ruth starts with a lady by the name of Orpah and her husband Elimelech who decide they'll leave Bethlehem where they lived because there was a famine, food was scarce, and they decided they would leave Bethlehem and that they would move and they'd go to live amongst people who were called the Moabites in the land of Moab. Um, the only trouble was that they, as, as God's people, you know, Hebrew, Israelite people, were leaving Bethlehem, and they were actually going to, in the middle of a pagan group of people who were absolute heathens and living among them. And, and you know, when they went down there, life got really complicated. Um, they had two sons. Their sons came to marry two, two Moabite women, and then what happened was the father, Elimelech, died, and then the two sons died. So Orpah was left with her two daughters-in-law, and that was it. And she heard that things were getting better in Bethlehem and said to the, the young women, look, I'm going back to Bethlehem. You go back to your families, and you'll be able to get a life there. And, and of the two, Ruth said, no, I'm with you. Where you go, I'm going to go. I'm coming with you. And she decided to go back to Bethlehem. So that's kind of the story so far. And, and one of the things that Charlotte stressed is this, and it, it's important to get this. If you're going in the wrong direction, you'll end up at the wrong destination. And, and that's what that's what had happened with Orpah and Elimelech. They'd gone in the wrong direction, and it didn't work out well. And you know what? If you wander away from where God wants you and the life God wants for you, it's never going to end well. You're going in the wrong direction. And your destination is not where you want to be. And things will not change until you turn around and go back to where God is blessing and where you're in relationship with God. 
So that's the story so far. Now, now I, I know, you know, some of you, some of you guys who've, you know, you're wearing your man card right here on, on, you know, on your chest. You're saying, this is kind of a girly story, Roger, isn't it? And, and, and you know what? The book of, the book of Ruth is, is to a large degree, it's, it's about women. It's got a lot in here for women. If you're an elderly widow, there's someone here you can identify with. If you're a young widow, there are lessons here for you too. If you're a mother who has lost a son, there's stuff for you here in the book of Ruth. If you're a married woman with a mother-in-law situation, <laughs> if you just nudge your husband, you really messed up, all right? Uh, there's something in here for you. Or if you're a mother-in-law with a daughter-in-law situation, there's something in the book of Ruth for you. But, but, and if you're a single woman looking for your Boaz, there's something here for you too. But there's way more than that. There are lessons in this story for all of us, which is why it's in the Bible in the first place, especially for those of us who need to see our lives turn around, either as a whole or in one particular area. And what I want to see today is I want us to look at how things started to turn around for Ruth once she arrived back in Bethlehem. Her and her mother-in-law, destitute, having nothing, no means of support. And I want us to look at how life started to turn around. Because you know what? The book of Ruth is a beautiful picture of what God does over and over and over again. It's a picture of what has happened to so many of us in this room to people that I've seen this actually happening. God has totally turned around a life that seemed ruined and a life that seemed empty and a life that was devastated and God has turned it around and brought out of it something absolutely beautiful because God does that stuff. So I'm in Ruth chapter two then today and, and what I want to do here is uh, in, in Ruth chapter two, let's just... Let's just read how things started to turn around. Verse 2, Ruth 2, verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, hang on, I totally messed this up. I've called her mother-in-law Orpah for the last five minutes, haven't I? <laughs> I'm just checking with Charlotte because she knows these things. All right, so, all right, Naomi is the mother-in-law, Orpah is the other daughter-in-law. All right, can we start again? It's a good job we're not live streaming today, right? Uh, if you've been trying to get online, by the way, the Wi-Fi in the building is down. So um, that's probably why you can't. And we, we're not live streaming, so the whole world didn't hear that I messed this whole thing up. All right, let's start again. Naomi, who is the mother-in-law, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose, in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. I, I just want to point out, number one here, that the first thing that happened in turning Ruth's life around was she, and the first step for some of you is this, making a move, making a move. The first thing that she did was she looked around and said, what's one step that I can take. We live in a culture that really delights in taking no responsibility for anything. 
But here's the thing. You can blame your mother. You can blame your father. You can blame your ex. You can blame your high school coach. You can blame the boss who doesn't like you. You can blame the government. You can blame the system. You can blame Elon Musk or the Chinese Communist Party. But the reality is this. In the end of the day, you know who turned around Ruth's situation? Ruth did. Ruth did. Let me go to the fields, pick up the leftovers. Now, it was written several times in the Old Testament law that was given to Moses that one of the ways in which the people of Israel were to take care of their poor was this. When they got to a land of their own and planted crops, when they came to harvest those crops, the reapers went through the fields once. And they were not permitted to go back a second time to gather anything or everything that was left behind or they'd miss. They were only allowed to go through the fields once and then whatever might have been missed or left behind was, was to stay there so that people who had no means of support, the poor in the community could come and they could gather the leftover grain, okay? So, so that, was, that was the situation there. It was left for the needy, the process called gleaning. That's why Naomi said, let me, let's get these names right. Ruth said to Naomi, yeah, it's follow that that's resounding in my brain. That's what's, that's what's messing with me, you know. So, let me, go to, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain. So, so she, went, she went as the poor could and did to pick up grain. She found the one thing that she could do and she did it. Her life began to turn around when she said, let me go to the fields. Peter Drucker, who's written a number of books on on business and succeeding in business, uh, says this in one of his books, successful people know they need to get many things done and done effectively. Therefore, they concentrate their time and energy on doing one thing at a time and on doing first things first. Ruth identified one thing she could do and she went for it. If you are anxious today, if you are struggling with insurmountable challenges, if you're feeling overwhelmed, if you're feeling there's no way forward, here's what I want to suggest to you from the book of Ruth. I want to suggest to you, identify just one step and take it. You may be in financial difficulties just now and, and, and it's like, I have no idea how I'm going to get out of this mess. You may be really up to your neck in debt with credit cards and you say, I don't know how it could even get started. And, and identify one thing. I'll give you the answer with credit cards, by the way. Stop using them. <laughs> I mean, cut it off at the source. Um, again, because we live in an entitled culture, sadly, very few people have come to be able to live with the statement, we can't afford it just now. I can't afford it. We can't afford it. We can't afford it. I can't afford that. And you know what? That's it. There's always going to be stuff you can't afford. 
So just reconcile yourself to that and cut the financial stress off there at the source. One step. You may be worried about your health. What's one step? Maybe it's to go see the doctor finally. That's a guy thing, isn't it? I know you ladies will probably attest to that, that, you know, guys kind of, we wait and wait and wait. I'm going to go, I'm going to go. See a doctor. If you're worried about your health, do some steps to get your health better. Take a walk. Maybe you're concerned about your marriage. Do something. Identify one thing you can go. Go talk to a counselor. You say, well, he won't go. You go. Do the one thing that you can do. You, you may say, well, spiritually, you know, I just feel like I need to know God better. What's one thing you can do? Come to church. Oh, you did. <laughs> All right. Yeah, come back. Identify the one thing you can do and commit to that one thing. But by the way, when Ruth thought about going and gleaning in the fields, you notice she went to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and said, do you think this would be a good idea? And, and I do want to say, very often before we take action when we're in difficulty, it's a good thing to run it by someone whose judgment you respect. Do you think this would be a good move? But even the one thing, that one small thing was actually a big thing. And sometimes your one thing will take a lot of faith and will take a lot of doing. Ruth had no idea how it would go if she went to glean in the fields. There were a lot of negatives, actually. She was Elimelech's daughter-in-law. Now, you've got to understand, um, Bethlehem wasn't this vast city. It was a tiny town. I've lived in a tiny town. I've passed it in a tiny town. If you change your car, everybody in the town knows you've got another car. If you change your mind or change your sheets, everybody in the town knows that you did it. They know everything you've done, and what they don't know, they make up. Small town life. So everybody knew who she was, and, and the fact is they wouldn't have thought much of Elimelech because in staying, instead of staying with them and weathering the hard times, him and his wife and, and, and the sons had all hightailed it off to Moab and to live with the enemy. And so... She, she might not have been the most popular person on the face of the earth. And then, th then there was the thing, she wasn't from there. And, and you know what? You've got to have lived in a small community before you get to know the reality of that. Uh, you're not one of them. When an Englishman goes to the northeast of Scotland into a tiny village to pastor a church, he feels totally at home and everybody's really friendly. But you know what the bottom line is? You're not one of them. You're not one of them. You're an incomer, was the word. And I think it took several years. In fact, I knew we turned a corner when we went away to a, a youth camp and took about 40 teenagers to a youth camp for a week one summer, and our boys turned out to be the rowdiest kids on the whole camp. And, uh, and, and one night, they just uh, a whole room full of them had refused to go to sleep, was keeping everybody awake, and was carrying on. And the guy who ran the camp um, 
came and kind of shouted at them. It's two o'clock in the morning. He said, if you're not going to sleep, you're going to come and do something useful. So he took them down to the kitchen, gave them a huge pile of onions and said, peel onions. <laughs> right? You couldn't do that in 2023, could you? You'd be arrested or something. But back in normal times, uh, <laughs> right? So these kids are, are doing the onions and, and then eventually they go back to the room and they settle down. And, and, and one of the ladies from our church who'd come with us, she was talking to me in the morning. She was very upset, said, you know, that's terrible. He had no right to do that. He just doesn't like us. He said, he, she said, he's just English. And I said, but I'm English too. She said, no, you're not. You're one of us. And, that was the moment I knew I'd arrived. <laughs> I had crossed that bridge from being an incomer into being one of them. So Ruth was an incomer. She was a Moabitess. She was from the country that was their enemies. She probably didn't speak the language or didn't even speak the language well. So it was going to be difficult. And then there was the fact that she was going to go and work in the fields as a, as a young woman, and, and she would be vulnerable there uh, with all the other people, all the guys there who were bringing in the harvest. It could be very difficult. But you know what? Despite the challenges that she might face, she decided to do the one thing that she could do. Don't sit where you're at, just bemoaning your condition. Identify the first step, and however difficult it might be, go for it. I've said to so many folks I've had conversations with over the years and, and made a suggestion. Why don't you try this? That wouldn't work. It's like, okay, I'm done. That's all I got. It's like, right? It's like, that wouldn't work. It's like, she gave it a try. Lao Tzu, who was a Chinese philosopher, is credited with a phrase you'll all know. The journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Amen. Do what you can do. Make a move. There's a wonderful story in the book of Genesis, and I love this story. Abraham is, is, is getting older now, and he's got a son called Isaac, right? And, and, and Isaac is, is a gift from God, the absolute light of his father's eye. And back then, it was, you know, marriages were kind of very much arranged. But Abraham's like, I mean, you know, to be fair, he was 100 years old when Isaac was born. Can you imagine? I can't. I mean, I can't imagine having a baby born into the family now. I mean, of mine. I love our great-grandchildren, but I'll do without another baby in our house. So he's 100 years old when the baby's born. So then, then Isaac grows up, and Abraham says to his most trusted servant, look, look, here, here's the situation. I'm too old to be going around and looking around and checking out to find a bride for Isaac. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go away from here because I'm living in a place where everybody seems to be godless heathens. And I want you to go back to kind of the, the, the home country where I came from and find a bride for Isaac. So Eliezer, the servant, goes off and, and he travels and he comes, he comes to this area that Abraham was talking about and he comes to a well to get a drink and as he's drinking at the well, there's a young woman. The Bible says she was a beautiful young woman who came out to get water for her camels, and she took care of camels. 
And Eliezer looked at her and thought, wow. So he engaged her in conversation. And then he said, hey, by the sound of it, you're a distant relative of my master Abraham. Have you got a guest room in your house? Now, accommodating guests, hospitality was a huge thing in those days in that part of the world. So he goes back to the house, starts talking to her father, and they have a conversation, and he tells the story, how Abraham sent me, and I'm looking for a bride for his son Isaac. And, and there's a terrific statement he makes. Um, I'm going to read it to you here, show it to you on the screen from the King James Bible, because this is where I read it. And here's what he says to him. He said, my master sent me, and, and he says in Genesis 24, 27, he says, I being in the way, the Lord led me. Now that sounds a little bit like Chinese, doesn't it? But here we go. I being in the way, the Lord met, led me. Basically what he's saying is this. When I set out, God guided me. When I got on the road, the Lord led me. When I started to move, right? So Eliezer didn't sit at home looking at match.com and see what he could find out, right? That wasn't what he did. So what he did, what he, what he did was he, he started to make the move, and he said, when I started to make the move, the Lord led me. I want to tell you something. You can sit and wait for a miracle forever, but the fact is, if you will take the one step you can take, you'll find that when you're on your way, the Lord will lead you. You start from there. God meets you when you're in the way, on the road, when you take the first step. Not when you're playing Minecraft or making TikTok videos. He meets you when you're on your way. He made the move and God made the rest happen. Philippians 3.13, the Apostle Paul says this. I am bringing all my energies to bear on this one thing. He got focused. He got focused. And the first stage for Ruth in turning her life around, and the first thing I want to commend to you today is this. Number one, make a move. Make a move. She said to Naomi, perhaps I'll go glean in the field. She made a move. The second thing I want to note from Ruth chapter 2 is this, and I, I love this statement. There are no chance events with God. That good? No chance events with God. Verse 3, so she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. Now, this is the next phrase is the one I love. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Now, here's the thing. Charlotte referred to Hallmark movies last week. Unlike a Hallmark movie, where you know within the first 60 seconds which couple are going to get together, but it takes them two hours to do it, right? <laughs> now, you know, in, the book of, in the book of Ruth, things don't start to come together till halfway through the book. And we'll find that, you know, Boaz and Ruth did have a future and, 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 and that it all became part of God's story. But we're going to look at that in the next couple of week as, weeks as that unfolds. But, but what I love is, is the way it states it here, where it says, as it turned out, 
coincidentally, by a stroke of good luck. And you know what? So often in our lives, when we might use one of those phrases or think them, the reality is God's at work behind the scenes. God was working behind the scenes. They'd arrived back in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. She went out to the fields to glean in the fields. And, and, and as it happened, she gleaned in the fields belonging to a man named Boaz. And we'll talk about him a little bit more next week. As it happened, as it happened. And every one of us here today could look back at points in our lives where things changed and things turned. And we could say, well, you know, why? Because this happened, that happened. And if you look well enough, you'll realize it wasn't just chance. It was the hand of God. See, people sometimes say to me, they'll ask me, how did you come to be on Long Island? I mean, how do you get from a little village in the northeast of Scotland to be pastoring on Long Island? And, and I say to them, well, in the summer of 1983, right? What's that? That's 40 years ago, right? Dear Lord. In the summer of 1983, there was a lady who'd grown up in our village who now lived in Virginia Beach who came back to visit her family that summer, and her pastor's wife came with her. And so one Sunday, they were in our service. I met her, said hello, chatted with her a little bit. That was it. And then the next day, because we lived in a village, you didn't always drive your car everywhere. You'd walk. So the next day, I went out of my house, and I'm walking along the street. Got no idea what I was doing. It was 40 years ago, for any sake, right? So I got no idea what I was doing. I was walking along, and actually, the lady who moved to Virginia Beach, her, her family lived three houses down from us. So... I'm walking along and I'm passing their house and suddenly I hear somebody banging on the window. And, and the lady who's visiting with the pastor's wife, she was banging on the window and then I kind of stopped and she, she came to the door and said, hey Roger, you got a few minutes? You want to come in and have your tea? One big benefit of living in small communities is everybody always wants to give you a cup of tea and homemade cake. So it's like, yeah, let's do this, right? <laughs> So, so I go in and I sit down and drink several cups of tea and I get to talk with this lady, Gwen Odom, for quite a, quite a long while. And we chat and we hang out and that was it. And I, They left sometime later in the week, didn't see them. Six months later, I get a call from Gwen's husband, Wally, who says, I'm having a pastor's conference in April in Virginia Beach. Will you come and speak at it? And so in April of 1984, I came to the United States for the first time. I must have done good because he asked me to come back the next year. And in 1985, when I came, I met a pastor from Long Island who was attending the conference. I got to know him. He said to me, next time you're, next time you're in the States, will you come and preach for us on Long Island? I said, yeah, sure I will. And that became a regular thing for several years. He came over and preached for us as well. And we got to know each other. And then eventually, in the summer of 1990, he said to me, would you think about coming over and taking over the church because I want to move on and do some other ministry? And I said, yeah. 
So we moved over. Things didn't quite work out as planned, but I worked with him for seven years. And it's like, I, I really got a different vision and passion for church. I want to start something different. And that's why we're sitting here today. But, 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 but what if they hadn't invited me in for a cup of tea that afternoon? Right? Right? Wouldn't have got to know the pastor's wife. She wouldn't have said much to her husband, probably. I wouldn't have come to Virginia Beach. Uh, what if I hadn't done good in Virginia Beach? Uh, I obviously did. What if they hadn't invited me back? I did come back the next year. I did meet the Long Island. All those things were not just chance, folks. They were God. And that cup of tea and cake was actually part of why I'm standing here this Sunday morning. It so happened. I just want to encourage you all today. God's in control. God's in control. And God's doing things even in the small details, even in the minute details. In Ephesians 4 and verse 6, Paul talks about one God and Father of all who rules over all, listen to the next bit, works through all and is present in all. God is guiding our lives. God has the pathway planned out. Psalm 37, verse 23, the steps of a good man are directed by the Lord. He delights in each step they take. And I just want to encourage you this morning, your life is being directed by the Lord. He's the one who's got the plan and his plans for you are good. His plans for you are to bless you. His plans for you are to prosper you. His plans for you are to give you a future and to give you a hope. There's far more going on in your life and mine than any of us is aware of because there are no chance events with God. As it turned out, as it turned out, and you know what? The whole of the life of Ruth actually was impacted by the fact she went to the fields of Boaz. But you know what? There was so much else going on because as Charlotte said, if you follow through from the beginning of the book of Matthew, where it gives you the genealogy, the, the lifeline of Jesus, all his ancestors, you will find that the lifeline of Christ that goes through, through, through um, back through the centuries goes back to Ruth and beyond. So actually Ruth and Boaz being together was part of the Savior being born. There was way more going on than, I'm gonna go glean, uh, let's go to this field. You may be in church today and you haven't been for a long time for whatever reason. But I dare to suggest it didn't just happen that you're in church this Sunday morning. There's a bigger plan. You know what the big plan is? God's drawing. God's calling. God's wanting to work out his purpose in your life. So Ruth goes and she gleans in the field. Boaz comes along and says to his servant, who's the new chick? <laughs> or words to that effect. That's the message translation. 
No, it's not. No, it's not. Um, and, he, and he says who she is. Says that's, that's Elimelech's daughter-in-law. She is, she is the, she's the, the, uh, the, the daughter-in-law of Naomi, and she's been there. And, and here's what Boaz said. Boaz said, look, here's what I want you to do. Make sure you leave plenty in the field for her. Make sure nobody harasses her. And when you take a break, let her take her breaks with you so she's protected. So she's in the fields for the day. She does good in the fields. She goes home and, and, you know, as anyone would, Naomi said, so how'd it go? And Ruth tells her what happened. Said, I met this guy called Boaz. Da, 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 da. And in, in chapter 2 and verse 20, he says this, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, why, God bless that man. God hasn't quite walked out on us after all. He still loves us in bad times as well as good. God hasn't quite walked out on us after all. He still loves us in bad times as well as good. And if you're here battling in life in some way today, I just want to tell you, whatever you're feeling, God hasn't walked out on you. God loves you in bad times as well as in good times. Naomi had been tempted to believe that God had kind of forsaken her and God had forgotten her. And because they'd returned to Bethlehem, she was destitute. She had an aching heart. She'd lost her husband and her two sons. She had an empty life. There was no way forward. So they come back to, to, to where the journey had started out. And the big thing is this. God had not finished yet. And the beautiful thing for Naomi was when Ruth came home that day, she saw a glimmer of hope. Faith keeps trusting. Keep trusting. Faith keeps trusting. Whatever you're looking for, praying for, really need, keep trusting because God has not walked out on you. He loves you in the bad times as well as the good. The story isn't over yet. On Monday, October the 23rd of the year 2000, I did what I did every Monday night. I went over to Farmingdale. I hooked up with the ministry to the homeless that fed the homeless on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And uh, we left Farmingdale about eight o'clock at night. We went to the Lower East Side at Avenue C and Ninth Street, and we set up on the sidewalk there to get ready to feed dinners and uh, pantry goods to the homeless. And we used to feed about 200 to 250 people every Monday night down on the lower, in the Lower East Side. We'd get in there, we'd set up, we'd start serving about 9.30, and we would serve there till about 11 or 11.15. And then we'd go over to Avenue A, and then we would go to 25th Street and Broadway where guys were sleeping in cardboard boxes, and, and we'd go around and offer them meals in, the, in their cardboard boxes. And, and then we'd get back quite late. We actually had an early night that night. Um, it's, it's hard for some of you to imagine. 
There were days long ago when we did not have cell phones. <laughs> or if we did have cell phones, you know what they did? They made phone calls. I mean, how useless is that, right? The cell phone, you can only make a phone call on and that's all they do. But that, that's kind of about, you know, so you couldn't keep up to date with anything. So one of the things, um, one of the things I was interested in, uh, I was interested because the Jets were playing that Monday night. Don't ask me why, but I was interested in the Jets, okay? So, so, so I was, I, I, their game had started at, at, at 10 past nine that night. And when I got back to Farmingdale, I got the news that with the end of the third quarter, the score was 30 to seven. The Jets were losing to the Dolphins. And the Jets' own announcer, Howard David, had said this. He said, and with a, with a whole quarter to go, the game is over. We unloaded in Farmingdale. I got home about 1.15. I went into the house and I put on the TV to see how bad the game had ended. And to my absolute amazement, when I turned on the TV, the Jets kicker, John Hall, was lining the ball up to, for an overtime field goal attempt. Because in the fourth quarter, the Jets had scored 23 unanswered points to tie the game. Miami scored again. The Jets scored again just before regular time ran out. And the Jets won the game in overtime. They call it the Monday Night Miracle. And, and all of you Jets fans will remember it. It was probably the last time you had anything to celebrate, right? But um, I'm sorry, I should be encouraging you, not, all right? But, but it's, it was a Monday Night Miracle. Here's the deal, folks. You don't call a game at halftime. You don't call a game at the end of the third quarter even. It's not over until it's over. And you know what? You don't draw conclusions on where your life's at from where you're at right now. Because the reality is God is still God. You keep trusting because he has not walked out on you. He has not forgotten you. He has not left you. He, 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 he has not washed his hands of you. He still loves you in the bad times as well as in the good times. Faith keeps trusting. God's the giver of hope. God's the giver of new life. And let's come back to this. Your being here today is no chance event. God turns lives around. Trust him to do that. Believe him to do that. It's no chance thing that you hear God's word saying, keep trusting, keep trusting. But the real question is this, what's your next move? What is the one thing you can do? And maybe for the one thing some of us could do today is just to say to God, God, I'm gonna trust you. God, I'm gonna trust you. God, I'm going to believe. God, help me with my unbelief. But Lord, I am going to believe. Take the next step, the one step, and see what God does. Let's pray together, please.